Amazing Ralph, Buena Vista Pictures, 97 Minutes, starring Jonathan Brandis and Steven Seagal, directed by Richard Martin. Jonathan Brandis plays point guard for the Crusaders, his high school's terrible varsity basketball team. One day, he brings his border collie, Amazing Ralph, to practice, and the dog amazes everyone by sinking 20 consecutive free throws, shooting 9 for 12 from beyond the arc, and punishing defenders in the paint, earning a triple-double during a shirts versus skin scrimmage. Since the bylaws of the Southern Wisconsin and Illinois Small Schools Conference don't explicitly state that a border collie can't play basketball, the coach, played by Steven Seagal, who is also Jonathan Brandis' father, replaces his son with the dog, and Amazing Ralph scores 40 points against Wisconsin Deaf en route to a decisive Crusader victory. After the game, the whole team goes to Minnie's Frozen Custard to celebrate, and Jonathan Brandis sits unnoticed in the parking lot as Amazing Ralph is treated to three scoops of death by chocolate. The Crusaders go on to win the conference title, their first in the school's 75 years of existence, and Amazing Ralph is hounded by Division I college basketball recruiters. Michigan offers unlimited dog biscuits, Duke hurls sticks and frisbees, and in a scene not suitable for younger viewers, Seton Hall takes Amazing Ralph out for a debaucherous night at a kennel club. During this time, Jonathan Brandis is distant and sullen, having to write personal essays for admission to small state schools as his dog is drooled over by NCAA powerhouses, and Steven Seagal takes him aside and says, Son, I know you're jealous of Amazing Ralph, and I know you're bitter about him replacing you at point guard, but you too will do something amazing one day. It just won't involve anything to do with sports. There's a sentimental string swell, Jonathan Brandis hugs his father, and then Amazing Ralph signs a letter of intent with the Yukon. Amazing Ralph has a successful freshman season, easily making first-team All-Big East, but his sophomore year his productivity drops off, and his on-court behavior becomes erratic. He appears restless, nervous, is uncharacteristically aggressive toward the referees, and occasionally bites himself after missing free throw. During a big game against Boston College, which Steven Seagal and Jonathan Brandis watch together at a sports bar, Amazing Ralph snaps at BC's point guard and is thrown out of the game, and when the TV cameras pan to him on the bench, he is noticeably foaming at the mouth. A day later, Yukon calls a press conference and confirms what Seagal and Son already suspect. Amazing Ralph has been infected with rabies. Brandis and Seagal immediately fly to Connecticut and visit Amazing Ralph at the veterinarian's. The dog is restrained and heavily sedated, and when he fails to recognize his owners, Brandis breaks down and sobs to his father's shoulder. Remember, says Steven Seagal, when Amazing Ralph was just a little puppy, how he was terrified of the living room recliner? Yeah, and remember, says Brandis, when he humped that Labrador retriever and Mrs. Simmons had to spray him with a hose? And the reminiscing continues between father and son as the camera slowly zooms in toward the sedated dog. A needle is seen, then the camera pans away, and the memories turn to laughter and dissolve.
American Heritage Dictionary, Columbia Pictures, 127 Minutes, starring Keira Knightley, John Turturro, and Steven Seagal, directed by John Woo. Based on the popular book, the American Heritage Dictionary features Steven Seagal as a brash, rogue lexicographer searching for etymologies in the dangerous criminal underworld of New York and struggling to define the words his murdered mentor never could. When the film opens, Steven Seagal is syllabically dividing the words of a death threat issued by a bloodthirsty gang of thesaurus publishers when the mysterious and seductive Kira Knightley appears at his office and hands him a 12th grade English vocabulary list. Do you know what this word means, she says, guiding Seagal's finger to the bottom of the page. A machination, says Seagal, the act of plotting, a hostile intrigue, and Knightley writes down the definition and disappears out the door. Seagal doesn't have long to ponder the visit's significance, as he is soon assailed by a consortium of linguistic terrorists, formal purists who seek to eradicate all colloquialisms, antiquarian zealots who desire the resurrection of archaic terms, British fundamentalists who insist that color should be spelled with a U. Armed only with his wits and his pronunciation guide, Seagal leads his attackers on a memorable chase through the New York Public Library, where the librarians scowl and tell the terrorists to outfit their guns with silencers, and after losing his enemies in the Deborah, Jonathan F.P., Samuel Priest, and Adam R. Rose main reading room, he discovers Kira Knightley with the Oxford English Dictionary, tracing the etymology of desire. Did you know, says Knightley, that the noun sense of lust was first recorded in AD 1340? Knightley pulls Seagal's face to her lips, and they make love beneath a handsome oak table, oblivious to the scores of schoolchildren passing by on a field trip. After they get dressed, Seagal tries to ask for Knightley's name, but she puts a hand over his mouth and says, The answers you seek lie within the Dewey Decimal System, then hands him a library catalog card before once again disappearing from his life. Seagal takes the card to his bookmobile driver come conspiracy theorist friend, played by John Turturro, and learns that hidden within the numerical code of the Dewey Decimal System is a powerful prophecy, a font of wisdom so valuable that thousands have already died in pursuit of its discovery. Some say it is the key to eternal life, says Turturro. Some say it is the face of God himself. Turturro agrees to help Seagal determine if Knightley's catalog card is the Rosetta Stone that unlocks the prophecy, and the two embark on a perilous adventure plagued by gunfights, car chases, and overdue book finds as they outwit the linguistic terrorists and henchmen from the Library of Congress. After a montage of Seagal and Turturro racing through the stacks of numerous public libraries, toppling shelves and knocking over old women in sundresses, the two arrive at the library hotel on Madison Avenue and are told a room is booked in Seagal's name, room 800.001, which in the Dewey Decimal System corresponds to erotic literature. From here, I must go alone, says Seagal, and Turturro nods and sits down to read a Tom Clancy novel. Seagal enters a room 800.001 and discovers Kira Knightley lying on a king-sized bed in a silk kimono and reading the Kama Sutra for dummies, and he immediately rushes to embrace her, 
but she pushes him away and launches into a confusing Dewey Decimal System related monologue. At first, it was only meant to classify, she says, but in time, it was corrupted by darkness. She details the sordid history of forbidden parts of speech, of the devil's umlauts and the sinister cult of the schwa, but Seagal doesn't listen. He instead retrieves the catalog card and tears it into a dozen tiny pieces. No more games, he says. No more puzzles, no more riddles, no more quests. I love you. Love, says Knightley, rising from the bed. I'll bet you can tell me all about love, how it's derived from the Old English, Lufu, how it means an intense affectionate concern for another person, a strong liking or enthusiasm for something, a zero score in tennis. But can you honestly tell me you know what love is? And Seagal tries to speak, but is unable to answer. He has an idea, but can't seem to find the words. themselves against a locker, rattling the combination locks as they sucked each other's faces like vacuum cleaners, but some congregated around the fire extinguisher, particularly the upperclassmen, as if their raging teenage hormones were highly flammable. Lucky had never kissed anyone. He had thick glasses and acne and a bottom rung on the social ladder, but when he saw a girl who exhibited superior style and technique, he jotted her name down in a spiral-bound notebook under the subheading Possible Actresses for the Greatest Love Story Ever Told, and during Fayed, he'd spend the entire period imagining the girl's tongue jousting with his own, tasting of cinnamon and spearmint, and then drift off into an imperturbable stupor as his classmates bombarded him with dodgeballs. The greatest love story ever told was Lucky's feature film, and the auditions were today, during lunch, in the cafeteria. He didn't have a script, or a crew, or a camera, but he did have a matte finish poster board that said, The greatest love story ever told, attractive girls wanted, and a sign-up sheet that was, as yet, conspicuously blank. The plot was not fully formed. Actually, it was pretty much non-existent, but Lucky knew that there would be lots of kissing scenes, and for the audition, he was going to ask the girls to make out with him for at least two minutes, improvising sighs and pleasured gasps, and demonstrating their emotional ranges with their tongues. If they asked him what the film was about, he figured he could improvise some non-committal BS, 
but what he was really banking on was that his first kiss would be so magical and inspiring that after making out with the muses, the greatest love story ever told would practically write itself. Unfortunately, as of 12.05, five minutes to the bell, not one girl, attractive or otherwise, had written her name on the sign-up sheet. The cafeteria was full of girls on Lucky's shortlist. Erica Stegerson, who flicked her tongue in and out like a lizard's. Rebecca Ross, who kissed as if she were administering CPR. But they completely ignored his matte finish poster board, and instead auditioned for after-school liaisons with the varsity hockey players. Lucky was used to being invisible. Sometimes he broke the school's dress code just to see if anyone would notice. But he thought every girl wanted to be in the movies to be rich and famous and immortalized in the magazine racks of dentist offices. So why weren't they all clamoring for a part in the greatest love story ever told? He'd even done all the posters lettering in an intricate old English-inspired font. He estimated that from start to finish, the poster had taken him three and a half hours. The bell rang, and Lucky stared dejectedly at his onion loaf. He hadn't touched it for fear it would ruin his breath for the kissing, and Erica Stegerson and the rest of the girls of Lover's Lane joined the herd of high schoolers vacating the cafeteria. Lucky's next class was Shakespeare One, and he wasn't looking forward to sitting through a class discussion on Romeo and Juliet, with the greatest love story ever told poster folded beside his desk and his sign-up sheet tauntingly empty. So he tore the poster from the wall and made a beeline for the trash cans until he was stopped by Marie Antoinette Lalonde, easily one of the least attractive girls in the school. What format are you shooting on, said Marie Antoinette, carrying a plastic tray smothered with gravy. Um, said Lucky, format? Yeah, like, are you using Super 8, digital, 35mm, high def? Oh, said Lucky, well, Currently, I'm still weighing my options. Marie Antoinette Lalonde had been in Lucky's health class in the ninth grade. Since then, her body had matured, but her face had grown even more ungainly and horse-like, and Lucky had heard the varsity hockey players refer to her as the guillotine, implying they'd only sleep with her if someone chopped off her head. Lucky had a nickname, too. He was always hearing people whisper, there goes Lucky, the leprechaun, but rather than feel a kinship with Marie Antoinette, he experienced only repulsion, like the identical poles of two magnets, and he was tempted to instantly leap from her presence and sprint for the double doors with his uneaten onion loaf. So who are your influences, asked Marie Antoinette, to which Lucky responded with a blank, bovine stare. Influences, repeated Marie Antoinette. You know, like, Wes Anderson was influenced by the French New Wave, Scorsese by the Italian Neorealists, the touchstones of your art, the progenitors of your craft. Who are the directors who inspire you? Lucky thought for a moment. I saw Jurassic Park on TV the other day, he said. It was pretty good. Who directed that? Marie Antoinette grimaced. Spielberg, she said. Personally, I think he's rather maudlin, don't you? Lucky shrugged his shoulders. Sure, he said. I guess. If you say so. Lucky didn't know Marie Antoinette very well, but he saw her all the time, roaming the hallways and lawns of the high school with a digital camcorder. He wasn't sure what she did with the footage. Almost all of her shots featured classmates giving her the finger, 
but when her right eye was in the viewfinder, she moved with a confidence and poise completely absent when stripped of her camera. It was as if, without a lens through which to view it, the world appeared too awful and terrifying for her to even think about. So, what's your movie about, anyway? said Marie Antoinette. I assume the title's ironic, like a Todd Solons' happiness sort of thing, right? Um, said Lucky. I don't think it's ironic. It's the greatest love story ever told. In his 16 years of life, Lucky had probably seen 10,000 kisses in the movies and on television. It always seemed so easy. One minute the guy and the girl were staring at each other or eating spaghetti or screaming about how much they hated each other, and then all of a sudden, wham, an epic on-screen makeout session. The thing was, though, that they didn't put people like Lucky in front of a camera. Ticket sales would plummet and ratings would fall through the roof. So he didn't have any true cinematic role models, someone to show him how a pockmarked, myopic loser such as himself could plant one on a girl without getting a restraining order or a slug in the face. Marie Antoinette seemed to know a lot about movies. He wondered how she felt about the whole thing, but he wasn't about to ask the guillotine if she wished that actresses were allowed to be ugly. The greatest love story ever told, said Marie Antoinette. What's the plot? Is it a tearjerker? A romantic comedy? A Robert Altman-style ensemble piece? Who's your cinematographer? Is it going to be single camera? Handheld, like Dogma 95? Where are you shooting principal photography? Have you secured the permits? Have you arranged for catering? Do you have a location scout? Do you have a crane? A lucky looked like a suspect, flushed with interrogation lights. His eyes blinked. His forehead sweated. He appeared on the verge of confessing to murder. It's a little early to discuss those things right now, he said, trembling. We're currently still in phase one. The cafeteria was nearly empty now. There were only a few stragglers and some custodians with mops. Lucky was going to be late for Shakespeare one, and when he walked through the door, Mr. Franklin would recite some witty quote from Hamlet or Macbeth, specifically designed to humiliate him and then a lecture on the tragic love of Romeo and Juliet, two star-crossed lovers, fated to stab and poison themselves. Was it really worth it, all this anguish over the opposite sex? Lately, it was all Lucky could think about. Maybe it was time to admit that the greatest love story ever told would never actually be told. The Lucky's dream was as transparent and formless as his film's non-existent plot. He could be a missionary, or a monk, hiding his frustrations behind a cloak of humility and service, and playing Ave Maria on giant church bells all day while contemplating his sacred vow of abstinence. But then, Marie Antoinette said, well, see you later, and turned for the double doors, and Lucky's dream came flooding back to him, fully formed, fevered, and desperate, and he found himself impulsively grabbing Marie Antoinette's wrist and like Romeo, scraping dying words from his poisoned, desiccated heart. Do you, he stuttered, do you want to kiss me? Lucky regretted his words immediately. He wanted to curl up and die right there on the cafeteria floor. But Marie Antoinette didn't laugh, didn't slug him or run for the hall. She disregarded him with the same cool composure she possessed when looking through the eye of her lens. 
I'm not gonna kiss you, she said, but can I be your director of photography? Lucky blinked at her, as if the interrogation lights had been turned off and he was getting accustomed to the darkness. He wasn't sure why she wanted to be a part of his stupid movie, wasn't sure what a director of photography even was, but the way she looked at him made him think that there was only one possible answer. Sure, he said, I guess, and Marie Antoinette excitedly grabbed the sign-up sheet and started diagramming her ideas for a breathtaking opening crane shot. Gate Films, 108 Minutes, starring Michael Moore, Minnie Driver, and Steven Seagal, directed by Michael Moore. In this charming romantic comedy from documentary filmmaker Michael Moore, his second foray into the world of feature films, Steven Seagal plays the CEO of a tobacco company that markets its cigarettes primarily to children and pregnant women. Playing himself, Michael Moore appears at the company's corporate offices accompanied by smokers who have had their jaws removed, and before he's escorted out by security, he sees Minnie Driver, Seagal's wife, waiting in the lobby for an elevator, and falls instantly, passionately, in love. While Moore's primary camera crew gets footage of seven-year-olds puffing away on mentholated bubblegum lights and expectant mothers chain-smoking maternity slims, a second crew is dispatched to follow Minnie Driver as she shops and runs errands around town. Moore interviews a retired tobacco executive who admits to lying about the benefits of fetal nicotine absorption, and right after he gets a powerful shot of the executive wiping tears from his eyes, he asks him if he knows anything about the CEO's wife, her favorite foods, favorite music, whether or not she has a thing for liberal social agitators. Seagal, seen primarily through archival footage, breaks ground for the Filtered Storks OBGYN clinic and the Junior Smokes Youth Center, with many driver ever at his side, smiling radiantly, and Moore watches the footage alone in his editing suite with a combination of bitterness and overpowering lust. Through voiceover narration, over a montage of former cigarette smokers undergoing chemotherapy, Moore vows to bring Steven Seagal's company to its knees and expresses a similar goal in regards to Steven Seagal's wife. 
Finally, after filming numerous tobacco executives refusing to suck on their Ferrari's exhaust pipes, Michael Moore is granted an interview with Steven Seagal in his office. Their conversation starts out innocently, with Moore recounting how he smoked his first cigarette in a middle school bathroom, but after Seagal refuses to answer several pointed questions, Moore produces a mass of cancerous lungs from a cooler and says, these are the lungs of your customers, as he dumps them on Seagal's desk, and then casually walks out the door. The film is finished in time for Sundance, where it receives a 15-minute standing ovation, but Moore is unable to enjoy his accolades, as Minnie Driver isn't in attendance. Earlier, he sent a letter to Seagal, apologizing for the lungs and inviting him and his lovely wife to the film's premiere, but Seagal wrote back, My wife doesn't like documentaries. They remind her of Driver's Ed, and Moore crumpled up the message and furiously recycled it with his newspapers. At Sundance, Moore is congratulated by actors and directors, telling him he opened their eyes about the tobacco industry, but Moore says, Uh, what's it matter? We all die sooner or later. He attends parties and press junkets and answers the same interview questions over and over. Yes, those were real lungs. Yes, I sucked my exhaust pipe. And at the end of every day, he watches footage of Minnie Driver in his hotel room and cries himself to sleep. When he finally checks out of the hotel, a bellhop asks him for a light, and he's tempted to rant about how cigarette smoke contains 43 known carcinogenic compounds, how it's responsible for a quarter of heart attack deaths and 90% of deaths from lung cancer. But instead, he wearily reaches into his pocket and pulls out a box of matches. He strikes the match, lights the bellhop cigarette, and sadly snuffs the flame as he leaves for the airport to commence his next documentary on the loneliness of the American auteur. is freedom for Roundhouse to the Mujahideen, Touchstone Pictures, 117 Minutes, starring Scarlett Johansson, Cedric the Entertainer, and Steven Seagal, directed by Michael Bay. In this patriotic action romp, Steven Seagal is Eagle Armstrong, the kickboxing junior senator from Ohio, who is so fed up with his government's mishandling of the Iraqi insurgency, he decides to fly to Baghdad to defeat the terrorists by himself. In the opening scene, against a backdrop of battered, battle-scarred buildings, Seagal practices his kickboxing in a crowded bazaar as a warning to any would-be terrorists, and drapes himself with an American flag, whistling Yankee Doodle Dandy and the battle hymn of the Republic. The U.S. military, Outraged with his reckless behavior, assigns a task force helmed by Cedric the Entertainer to keep him in line and provide intermittent comic relief, and Seagal greets them with a roundhouse kick and says, Eagle Armstrong, middle name, Freedom. Seagal roams the streets of Baghdad searching for terrorists, but unlike his previous action adventures, the enemy is hard to identify. In the past, his opponents, dressed as ninjas or were zombies or had foreheads emblazoned with swastikas, 
but in Iraq, there are no such signifiers. The man next to Seagal could be a jihadist, but he could just as easily be a fruit vendor. Seagal sees a suicide bombing and runs to the smoldering wreckage, looking for someone to kick box, but the enemy is already dead, along with his dozens of innocent victims, and there's no one to fight except wailing bystanders who grab Seagal's flag and throw it in the violence's lingering flames. Seagal performs a hammer kick and says their deaths will be avenged, but the bystanders just curse in Arabic and watch the stars and stripes crumble to ash. Back in the green zone, the US military's heavily fortified sanctuary, Seagal meets an attractive young private played by Scarlett Johansson, and they almost immediately have wild, gratuitous sex. This is typical for Seagal, who has never been a stranger to the ladies, but after three weeks of no kickboxing, he becomes irritable and distant, and even when Johansson coats her breasts with military-grade rations, she's unable to coax Seagal into her bed. What's the matter, says Johansson, don't you want a love interest? I don't know anymore, says Seagal. I mean, both of our characters are so weakly developed, we barely even know each other. Seagal thinks back to Jessica Alba from My Middle Name is Freedom 3 and Liv Tyler from My Middle Name is Freedom 2, and he can remember almost nothing about them, where they were born, what kind of food they liked, the names of their siblings and parents. He vaguely remembers his love interest from My Middle Name is Freedom 1, but the name is lost to him, and as he gazes at Scarlett Johansson, he is certain that, in time, he will forget her, too. What if I developed my character for you, she says, naked except for the meal ready to eat on her chest. It's too late for that now, says Seagal. My middle name isn't sit around and wait. Seagal leaves the safety of the green zone and staggers through the most dangerous neighborhoods of Baghdad, playing Toby Keith from a boombox and goading the terrorists to fight. The Iraqis avoid him, expecting an explosion any minute, but Seagal follows them past the markets and mosques and says the lessons of 9-11 will not be forgotten. Eventually, Seagal finds himself in the middle of a bustling market, surrounded by the unknown enemy, and as he demonstrates his powerful spinning hook kick, he says, just tell me who to kickbox, again and again, with Toby Keith still singing, should have been a cowboy from his shouldered boombox. The Iraqis shake their heads and solemnly desert the bazaar, and Seagal is left alone in the street, red, white, and blue, and kickboxing at nothing. Nothing.